study in the book of James. We're down to chapter 4. We'd like to look at the first 10 verses of chapter 4. Maybe we ought to read these verses, and then we'll go back over them. James 4. Whence come wars, that is, from where, and whence come fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your pleasures that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and covet and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may spend it in your pleasures. Ye adulteresses, Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, would be a friend of the world maketh himself an enemy of God. Or think ye that the Scripture speaketh in vain? Doth the Spirit, which he made to dwell in us, long unto envying? But he giveth us more grace. Wherefore the Scripture saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Be subject, therefore, unto God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall exalt you. We notice these expressions, wars and fightings, killing. Again, fighting and war. Is this being addressed to Christians? Are Christians here being accused of such atrocities? Well, most folks think, yeah, and I agree, I think so too. Others think, no, it's referring to other people. But in just the paragraph before this, let's read from chapter 3, 14, 15, and 16. Talking to the same people, it's in the same letter, but if ye have bitter jealousy and faction in your heart, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom is not a wisdom that cometh down from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where jealousy and factions are, there is confusion and every vile deed. So you can see that James is addressing himself, I think, to brethren. But these expressions, wars and fightings, have to be considered in a, a figurative sense. And I'm not going to give other examples where we can find that in the Bible. But the question is, what is the source of these wars and fightings and killings? Well, James tells us it's the lust and the desires which crave worldly or fleshly satisfaction. And so there is a call to repentance. There is the condemnation in the first few verses and then this call to humility and to repentance, and certainly that's needed, to bring these readers, those to whom 
James is writing this epistle, back into the favor of God. Worldliness was the problem then. Worldliness is the problem today in the church. And worldliness is one of the continual problems that we must face. John 17, 14 tells us that God has saved us. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. And we need to remember that distinction. Colossians 1 and 13 tells us that we've been delivered out of the powers of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his Son. That the Lord Jesus Christ has saved us. And therefore we're going to have a, we're to have a different devotion. We're to have a different God. 2 Corinthians 4 and 4 speaks about the God of this world, that's Satan. But being delivered out of his power and out of his family and his kingdom into the kingdom of God, then our devotion and our surrender must be complete to God, the sovereign Lord. God has justified us, wiped away our sins, looks down upon us as sinless angels, but he has left us in the world. So God expects us to grow in his image and to grow by continually purifying ourselves. In 1 John 3 and 3, it says that whosoever hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. We have the hope of being like the Lord going to heaven. Then we should purify ourselves. And that can, purification is to take place continually. The problem is the world. Uh, there's our enemy. John said in 1 John 2 and 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. He that loveth the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is a problem James is concerned with here. And we'd like to look at it a little bit more in detail. And so he begins by saying, Wherefore come wars and whence come fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your pleasures that war in your members? Now, there are different ideas about who the members are. We're all members of the church. The Bible also speaks about the members of our body. In fact, he just spoke about, in the beginning of chapter 3, about the tongue as a very small member of the body. And I think that's the reference to members that we find here. They're warring. And so these wars and this killing is figurative. And it's to be understood as conflict, quarreling, strife, internal bickering that existed in God's people and in God's family. And that's what he's condemning here. You lust, you have this great desire, uh, and you have not. You kill and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, you have not because ye ask not. Now he's talking about two groups of people about prayer. Those who don't pray. You ask not, so you have not. Maybe it was because they were afraid to ask for what they really wanted when God promises blessings but not what they wanted. And so they were afraid to ask for that perhaps. 
knowing that God didn't send the kind of blessings, maybe I shouldn't use the word blessing, the type of pleasures that they were seeking for their own selfish gratitude. And then he mentions others. Ye ask, this would be another group, though some of them didn't ask, and receive not because ye ask amiss, that ye may spend it in your own pleasures. To ask amiss means for the wrong purpose, the wrong motive, and it was to be a bad purpose. And that's why the Lord didn't answer their prayers. They wanted it to spend it upon their pleasures. They weren't thinking about receiving this blessing from God for the benefit of their own family, or for the family of God, the church, or even for folks that uh, are in need out in the community that we as Christians can serve and help. But just for their own gratification. Ye ask and ye receive not. The Bible teaches that we ought to pray. And he's touching on the subject of prayer here. Paul said in 1 Timothy 5, 17 that we should pray all the time. Pray without ceasing. Jesus taught in Matthew 7, 7 and 8, you know, ask, seek, knock, and you're going to receive. Of course, there are a number of conditions that God places for our prayer. Two of them are mentioned here. Not even asking. Another asking for the wrong purpose and wrong motive. That won't get the answer from God. So we need to pray, but for the right purposes. And then in verse 4, he said, ye adulteresses. And the King James has the word adulterers, both the masculine and the feminine. And it's thought that the masculine was added later, not in the original writing of James's epistle. That it was added because uh, they didn't think it'd be quite right to, to, uh, to accuse all the women. That's feminine. You adulteresses. What about the men? Are there not any adulterers among them? But the point is, and I think correctly, that he's talking to the church. And in both the Old and the New Testament, the church is referred to as the bride. Isn't God the, the, the husband? His people, the bride? Even though the church, and in the Old Testament, his family, were composed and is composed of men and women, as a unit and as a body, the Lord uses the expression, we are all his bride. And the bride is in the feminine. And so we think correctly it's addressed to uh, the whole church and they're referred to as adulteresses. Those who have not been faithful in their vows to God. A husband may be unfaithful to his wife and vice versa, the wife to her husband. Being guilty of adultery. Well, we can be guilty of adultery in a number of ways. We primarily think in the Old Testament that their uh, adultery was by idolatry. They broke their vow to serve God. They were serving Baal and all of these other gods. So here he's addressing himself to the church. And to a church that he later refers to as ye sinners, ye double-minded. And so that covers those to whom this was addressed. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. And he says that again. Whosoever therefore would be a friend of the world maketh himself an enemy of God. Now, we can't be both, he says. If we love the world, we cannot love God. Well, that's what John said, 1 John 2, we already quoted that. 
Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. He that loveth the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, we're not to love the world. When we do love the world, then we're, looking at, we're making God our enemy. We've made enmity between him and us. And he says that's not to be the case. We'd be a friend of the world. That is a big, big problem. James is condemning worldliness. And he's helping us to see what the end result is. And so we have to all be on our guard. Just individually and congregational-wise, we need to be able to help those who we see stepping across the line to be helpful, to encourage them to be in God's favor. Well, let's go on with the, less, less, the next point. <laughs> so, in verse 5, he says, Or think ye that the Scripture speaketh in vain, doth the Spirit which he made to dwell in us long unto envying, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore the Scripture saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Now this is a difficult area here, and uh, people are not always agreed on it. When he speaks about the spirit which he made to dwell in us long unto envy. Is he talking about the Holy Spirit, or is he talking about the spirit of man? Because both have been made to enter into man. Without the human spirit, man couldn't live. When that leaves, we're dead. But there are a number of passages that speak about God giving the Holy Spirit, His Spirit, into ones who become a Christian. Like Acts 2.38, and he shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 5.32, and Galatians 6.4, and many others. Well, we'll tell you what we think. You may differ. What he's talking about here. The Spirit. Though it's, uh, my version, has a small s for Spirit which would suggest not the Holy Spirit. At least the translators didn't think so. I don't know what the King James says. I forgot to check that. But we know that in the manuscripts as they were written, either they were all capitals, every letter, or they were all small letters in the Greek. They didn't write like we write today. We'll start a sentence with a capital letter. We'll, uh, we'll use capital letters for proper names. Talking about God, we use capital letters. So... The translators made a little S here, thinking that this refers to the human spirit. Maybe so. But let me tell you why I think it's the Holy Spirit, and that it means this. That the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, longs for the undivided loyalty of God's children. And he gives grace to achieve that purpose. That makes sense, and I think that's the truth. Whether this verse is teaching that or not, we're not certain. That the Holy Spirit longs, and the Holy Spirit does dwell within all the Christians, longs for the undivided loyalty of his people, God's children, and he gives grace to them to achieve that purpose. Now, he continues on, uh, quoting another scripture. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Proverbs three thirty four. Be subject, therefore, unto God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So again, it's like the church and the world. It's like God and Satan, the devil. We've got to make a choice. 
Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. That expression, draw nigh to, is used quite often in the Bible, and generally it's talking about drawing nigh in worship, drawing nigh in service. It speaks about Aaron and his sons drawing nigh unto God when they were serving in the uh, tabernacle, preached later in the temple. Hebrews 4 and 16 tells about, uh, let us therefore draw nigh unto the throne of grace in prayer, but we can draw nigh unto God when we praise him and when we worship him. So he's saying, draw nigh unto God, and he'll draw nigh unto you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. So these people are addressed, though Christians, as sinners. They're impenitent sinners. They've not repented of their worldliness and those sins, so he calls them sinners. But he tells them to cleanse their hands. This is an expression referring to moral cleansing. Cleanse your hands. And uh, purify your hearts, ye double-minded. They're called double-minded because they're trying to serve the, the world and God at the same time. That's impossible. We're enemies to God if that's what we're trying to do. He's already told us there. So they're double-minded sinners. Now, verse 9, I remember sometime in the past reading this, and I thought, well, now, what does that mean? It doesn't apply to all Christians. Let me read it now. It would apply to all Christians if they're in the same condition that he's describing here. But everybody's not in this condition, being impenitent, worldly. So when he says in verse 9, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Now, you know, if you think that's for everybody, that wouldn't really fit, I don't think, of the Scriptures. Because so many times Paul said rejoice, and again I will say rejoice. He used that word over and over again. We're to be happy, joyful, and it's not a sin to laugh. But here it was a sin. Because these people were not repenting of their worldliness, and they were going on just as happy as they could be. And so it's that kind of an attitude that, that James is saying that you need to change. Don't laugh, don't have joy, but you need to be mourning for your sins. There should be a, a heaviness over your lives. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall exalt you. And that's repeated a number of times in the scriptures. We have the Lord Jesus Christ as an example of many things but certainly an example of humility. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Remember when, James, uh, when Jesus expressed the invitation, Matthew 11, 28 and 29, Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. That's our example. That's the image that we want to grow continually into. The life and the death of Jesus are a standing rebuke to every form of pride. Let me give you some examples. Jesus had no pride of birth. Is not this the carpenter's son? Jesus chose his own family, his own profession. No pride of wealth. 
The Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Like the fox and the birds of the heaven. No pride of personal appearance. He hath no form nor comeliness. Isaiah described the Lord like that. No pride of superiority. He said, I am as he that serveth. No pride of ability. I can of mine own self do nothing. No pride of will. Again, Jesus said, I seek not mine own will. And no pride of resentment. Father, forgive them. While on the cross. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall exalt you. We have a song of invitation we wish to sing. Any who have not obeyed the gospel, we encourage you to do that. If you have any need to respond as a child of God, we all stand ready to help one another. Would you come as together we stand and sing?